From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out The Big Picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line from Arkham Asylum where he has checked himself in is Andy Greenwald. Just kidding, Andy couldn't make it today. Yes, we are both pretty disappointed about how last night's basketball game worked out. But uh, Andy, we had a day off today. And I just wanted to I just wanted to pod with somebody different today. So me and Wozni Lambre talked about a lot of different stuff. Mostly about rap music, so probably not like the usual pod for the watch, but I wanted to just chat with Waz about a bunch of different things. We talked about hacks, we talked about Jay-Z, we talked about regionalism, we talked about nostalgia, a wide-ranging conversation that I think anybody who uh, is interested in pop culture will enjoy. Andy and I will be back on Thursday night, Friday morning to talk Top Chef and Loki. Until then, have a great week, everybody, and check out my conversation with Waz. Now I'm joined uh, for the first time on the Watch Pod by my buddy Wozniak Lambert, who's joined the Ringer a couple, what, like a month ago, right? Yeah, it's about like six weeks now. I want to say you've yeah. been like getting up shots though, because like now you're like <laughs> on the pods all the time. I wanted to have you on just because I don't think you and I have gotten a chance to talk about like pop culture culture stuff in a while. And you know, I initially texted you. I texted Waz and been like, "Do you want to like are there any shows you want to talk about?" And I think you wrote back just hacks. <laughs> just hacks. That's is, is that because that's how much what you have time for when it's NBA season and it's postseason and there's like six to eight hours of basketball on a night. So there's just like I can watch a half hour show, maybe. Or is it like do you usually go like for like one show at a time like that? No, really what it is, Chris, is that I'm a TV snob in a way. And I don't like all the shit that everybody else likes, right? Like a lot of my friends. God bless them. They'll watch shit like Snowfall. I can't do it. Like, there was like a side of me in the first or second episode during a drug deal. And I was uh-huh. like, I'm out. I, I can't do it. This, this is just too, like, surreal for me. So, like, that's, I'm kind of picky. Like, TV's definitely my favorite of the visual mediums. Uh-huh. But I'm kind of picky about it, right? I find myself gravitating towards the HBO stuff because it seems to be the most curated. It just has that feel. 
And so that's why I'm not watching a lot of TV at a time. It's because there's just not a lot of dope stuff out, in my opinion. Like, for instance, I got Peacock just so I could watch Law & Order, the OG yeah. episodes. Yeah. SVU, I get it. That's the popular one. That's the one that people are tweeting about all the time. Is that the perception now that SVU has become the people's champion that Law oh, & yeah. Order is for like your uncle or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And for me, SVU is it's a little trashy. I, I, I just, it's just That's just my opinion. Like, I'm the Jack McCoy. I'm Lenny Briscoe. That's my law and order. I don't do some of that stuff. So that's just an example of, you know, the, my snobbish tendencies <laughs> as it pertains to TV. I was watching Law and uh, SVU last night with my wife, and we watched one that was just basically the plot of Hustlers. Uh, it was just like, uh, like a trio of women who drug uh, rich. Uh, tech bros in New York City, oh, and it's like it's like I love that show so much, but every once in a while they will they will throw in the one liner where you're just like, that's inappropriate, man. It's <laughs> yeah. inappropriate to have like a sick comeback when this is happening, right? Yeah, and and look, I don't want to say SVU is terrible. I'm just saying like as it compares to you know even the Dennis Farina era Law and Order original, I just don't think the writing, the acting anything is as good as that, right? And I think that's the standard that I've kind of held the Law & Order franchise to. And so I ignore it now. You feel me? But I, but I understand that people are entertained by it and whatever, they can have it. Do you wind up... Um because like a lot of the times on the, this pod, we're like kind of chasing whatever's next and chasing like the show that debuted on Friday or the show that's on on Sundays right now. Do you feel like free of that pressure as just... As, as, are you kind of like I'll watch what I want to watch and that show might be from 2002 or it might be from 1996 or it might be from right now but like do you have a uh, internal pressure that you ever put on yourself to like keep up with TV necessarily no because I'm, I'm I'm in a constant conversation about TV with a lot of the people in my life right and so there's a few of my friends who understand the stuff that I'm going to be super into. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about it amongst ourselves, right? Um, and so, like, for instance, like industry. When yeah. I watched that show, there were two of my homies who I literally had to call. I'm like, listen, they're finance bros. They're doing drugs. They're having sex. This is our show. <laughs> and so that's what ends up happening, right? And to be quite honest, I depend on people like you and Andy to put me on to, to, to what I should be watching. Or, you know, I'm a big fan of what they do over at Vulture, right? Sure. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm depending on people like what we do at The Ringer, people at, the, at Vulture. Like, I keep up with the quote-unquote experts, right, when it comes to what I need to be watching TV-wise. But there's enough people in my life who are as passionate about TV as I am, and so I count on them, right? Like, the la actually, the last thing that I watched that wasn't Hacks or Mayor of Easttown was the um, High on the Hog joint mm -hmm. on Netflix because, obviously, I'm, I'm heavy into food content. Munchies, Bon Appetit, rest in peace. I know they came back as Woke Appetit. <laughs> but like, you know, the original sauce, the original recipe. Shout out Claire. She came on the watch once, yeah. <laughs> Salute to Claire. Molly Baz, I'm still all over your Instagram. So I'm super into food content. And somebody uh -huh. put, was like, yo, you should watch the High on the Hog joint. And the first episode was set in um, Benin, 
which is in Africa, which was one of the outposts um, during the transatlantic slave trade, right? And as a Haitian, um, we actually trace our roots back to Benin, uh, the Congo, and Nigeria. Those are the three main places. So I felt kind of connected to it mm -hmm. as a first-generation Haitian-American. So that was something that I kind of had to watch, right? And so stuff like that will come to my come to my plate and I'll watch it. But yeah, realistically, I'm counting on you, Chris. <laughs> you know what, though? Because I wanted to talk a little bit music stuff with you, but I remember, you know, I really I, I kind of like around when there was like the Napster LimeWire wave and it started to become that you could just get anything for free. But right. I don't think it had the same kind of uh, feel that it does now with shout out Spotify, but like also like with Apple Music and the way that within music you can sample anything. Like you can kind of be like, I'm just going to check it out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim through this and I will either add it to my library or not. And I'm already in the, they already, they're already taking their 15 a month from me or whatever it is. And so everything is just kind of going to be, it's, it's like flipping through the stacks in a record store, but you're actually, you just, you just, you're just pulling everything out and listening to it. And I think that that changed the way people interact with music a lot because it took out the, I have I have a finite amount of money and time to spend listening to and purchasing music. So it's an active participation in... The, in it's a choice. It's like, I, yeah. I have to choose this record over that record. And now you don't have to do that. If you pay your monthly fee, you can just basically like mess around with anything. And I feel like that's a little bit where TV is going, where I think that there used to be a reliance on people to tell other people like, hey, check out this show. Or there's an underrated show that's on this. Or this show has gotten much better in the second season. Or if you can rent the DVDs or catch up with this show, catch up with Friday Night Lights. And now it's just kind of like, I find more often than not, people are just like their own animals when it comes to how they watch TV. And a lot of the times it's like, yeah, I turn on Netflix at the end of the night and I just let it rock. And, I, and I, sometimes I watch like six bake-offs or sometimes I watch a Scandinavian mystery show but there doesn't seem to be like um, basically uh, like basically like water cooler conversations around these shows. Do you feel like that that is something that attracts you to the TV process where it's like you're you get to talk like you said, you talk about industry with friends. Is it important to have something that's shared? You know, I used to think that I, I that it was. And then the insufferability of people online behind the last season of Game of Thrones mm. convinced me that I no longer need to participate in group settings with something that I'm really enjoying. Because people try their hardest to absolutely ruin the last season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, they, the, the, the level of bitching that went on on the internet, like, I will never, I will not soon forget it to the point where I think there's still a stink on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Probably the most legendary piece of TV content that we're ever going to fucking see. People found a way to ruin it because Benioff and Weiss is like, yo, I dedicated like 10 years to this shit and I'm, I'm going to kind of rush through the last season. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm off of it. I'm over it. I like, I, I get it. I completely understand how and why it was handled the way it was. It was just like, yo, we're burnt out. You know, it's over and we no longer have the source material. And it's like the amount of time that gets um, gets put into the logistics of the show for me to then be a genius about writing it, too. Right. Uh, it's a lot. It's a it's a heavy lift. It's a lot to ask. And the bottom line is like the Red Wedding that happened as an experience as a TV watcher, like. You know, Hard Home, all of these amazing moments that Game of Thrones delivered over the course of the duration of that show, those things happened whether you liked that last season or not. So the idea that everybody shat on it, I'm just like, you know what? 
I don't need it. I don't need the conversation anymore. Y'all could, y'all participate. I'm, even if people are having it, I'm going to ignore it. Do you think that that, it kind of mirrors sometimes what it's like to, to especially during the postseason of the NBA, when you're watching sports. And if you spend a lot of time online, which you and I both do, whether we like it or not, yeah, <laughs> you start to get into a real, like everybody is like an armchair quarterback or a backseat driver for coaches, especially where it's just like, I can't believe this guy didn't do this. I can't believe this guy didn't make this adjustment that I would have made. And oftentimes I'm, I'm sure like what 90% of the time, there's some element of it that we don't understand or that goes on behind the scenes that we're not privy to. And the same thing could be said for the way that we engage with a lot of like, especially TV where I think people are like, this is how I would have done it. Or I can't believe they screwed yeah. this up in this way. But it doesn't seem to necessarily, I don't know, it's, it doesn't, that, that kind of criticism doesn't always, for me, go that far because I, like, I, I prefer to think about things more in terms of aesthetics. Like I turn, how does this show make me feel? How do they, yep. what is this show trying to tell us about what it means to be alive? And then when it comes to the sports stuff, it's like, yeah, I could like second guess Doc Rivers until I have laryngitis, but like there's like bigger issues at play rather than like whether or not one guy played seven minutes and another guy played 12 yeah. or 13 minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the thing about the armchair quarterbacking, and to bring it back to Thrones, because I think it's an amazing example of this, it's like people killed the showrunners for how they managed the final season. And I'm like, yo, your man, your hero, George R.R. R. Martin, has been working on that last damn book for how long now? I don't think it's the last book. Doesn't he have to write two more? Oh, okay. So there you go. Right? Yeah. So this dude has been working on that for how long? He still can't put it out. He's on every single speaking engagement. He living high on the hall. He's, to bring he's back doing another, football blogging. Come yeah. on, man. Yeah. And so your hero, if it was so easy, he would have been put these damn books out. You know, the idea that these two dudes were supposed to have this amazing turnaround and deliver this flawless product for you entitled pricks is just <laughs> insane to me, right? And so just the idea that people could say, oh, this sucked. It's like, bro, come on, man. Like, have some self-awareness here. Like, these people are doing their best. Let's cut them some slack. So what's the thing that you're an entitled prick about? What What is, like, is it... Is oh, I'll it? tell you. It's, it's Jay-Z albums. Um, <laughs> I'm a so because I'm such a Jay-Z fanatic, like I can literally like probably rap all of volume two and three to you right now, front to back, right? Yeah. Um his newest stuff is whack to me. I'm sorry. Like I know what this guy sounds like when he's trying his absolute hardest at rapping, and this ain't it. He's been mailing it in for basically, I want to say basically since after Watch the Throne. Mm -hmm. That's the last dope Jay-Z project from start to finish. And like, I remember when Magna Carta Holy Grail came out and I'm like, yo, guys, this is, these raps are terrible. Like, I, like to the standard that Jay-Z is at, where, you know, for my money, he's pound for pound, probably either first or second best rapper ever. Um, so when that's the standard and I listen to, you know, some of the newer stuff and I'm just like, this ain't it. You know, so I know some people, there's different, there's two strains of Hove fans. There's people who are just grateful to have any new Hove material. They love him so much. And there's people like me who I'm just like, nah, the highs were just too high for me to settle for this, you know, milk toast, mailed in, you know, soccer dad, Jay-Z. I just can't do it. No, we're talking about, if you're talking about Thrones and you're talking about endings, Jay ended it. Jay had the perfect ending. You know, I mean, like, I, I don't think that there's been... 
an album that I was as obsessed with as Black Album. You know, just in terms of like the the premise of the whole project, mm-hmm. the the S. Doc Carter mixtape that kind of preceded mm-hmm. it, the actual record being like it's just these what was it like 10, 11 tracks? Yeah, and it was like with the ten, eleven best producers, right? And I think what M is like the only guest, right? If I remember yeah, correctly, M is the only guest verse, yep. And it was like the perfect closing statement. And it's like it's it literally is art versus commerce. I mean, like I'm sure that he wanted to keep rapping. I'm sure that there were other things that he wanted to do. I think he wanted to be a different person. And maybe the black album ends a certain like cycle of his on mic character. Yes, but at the same time, it's like what we want is like a fan or as like a participant in the culture of, of rap music or TV or whatever, where it's like, we want, we want close to close chapters and we want that to be the end of the book. And then, and then that's, it is often not what works for an artist or for a human being who wants to just like keep being a participant in this stuff. But black album for me was like, you can't do it any better than that. You couldn't put a capstone on a career any better than that. And I, I don't know what I really ever expected from him after that. You know, it's like, I guess I was just like, would throw, you know what I think it would be? The ideal execution would have been like, can you do three or four more Watch the Thrones of like these sort of like inventive event albums with a collaborator? Yeah. And I think that's what the joint with his wife, Beyonce, was. It was an attempt at recreating that. But, you know, and to illustrate my point, like I'm going to use Jay-Z's words himself, right? He had a, he had a, a, an interview at Soho Beach House with Elliot and B Dot of Rap Radar fame, and obviously Elliot worked for Title, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Um, and B Dot was like, "Yo, you know, there's people saying that um, the flow is kind of gone, right? Like, did you you rapping off beat at times? When was this? Pretty much like recently. Recently, this interview. This is, okay, yeah, this interview. It was, it was around the time when he came out with the four 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 album." It was an interview in support of that album. And Jay said, look, there's times I'm in the studio. I'm, I'm with Dion. I'm just letting the beat play. And I don't even have headphones on. I'm just literally talking to the beat. And then he says, go listen to Marcy Me. The flow is there. And, he's, and, he, and he, said that he said the beat, I'll never forget this. He said, listen, I'm the most on-time rapper that you probably ever heard. Like, you've never heard a person flow like me before. Yeah, I'm on time on every single beat. You know that. So if I'm off beat, it's intentional. Right. So that's all I need to hear. It's like he's not trying. <laughs> it's like the last song on the album, Marcy Me, is like, oh, this is the vintage. This is peak Jay-Z flow right here. This is what I came to see. And he does it at the end of the album. Be like, yeah, I can still do it. I just don't. And so I'm not going to settle for that. I'm good. <laughs> I'm just good. Do you find yourself endlessly engaged with him though? Like, do you still like, at, or, or are you kind of like, I wish we could put this in the rear view and he could just be an executive and, and, and like the music wasn't so much a part with it. Do you feel like the, you always like answer the call when like, a this new is, I don't think I've ever said this in public before, but like the way that I engage with Jay now is a bit of, I don't want to call it disgust, <laughs> Is it self-loathing? No, it's like, because like I've gotten older and my politics have become more sophisticated, like Jay-Z's uber capitalist persona and like self-image is so off-putting to me. And that's how I find myself engaging with 
him now as a mm-hmm. public persona. It's like the stuff that we used to think was cool about Hove. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Me handle my business, damn. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we used to think was amazing about Jay. You know, I sold Rockaway for 200 mil. I did this, blah. Like, it's so extremely off-putting in a time of record inequality in America, right? Yeah. So that's how I find myself engaging with Jay-Z now. It's like, damn, bro. Like, how much money is enough, dude? <laughs> Do you like, find that, though, that that affects the old, the classic records? Like, is it in fact no. your enjoy? No, right. Because, no. like, I actually had, I think when I was really getting into Jay and really starting to, like, kind of grapple with him, I was, I was sort of like, there's parts of, like, the, the coldness with which he raps about certain mm-hmm. things that I find, like, a little bit, I don't know if I would, like, off putting. Just sort of like, uh, like, yeah, like, I think that my, like, I had a more personal reaction to, like, the, the sort of point of view that he had. And then as, I think it was around three, volume three, where I was like, if you don't recognize this guy as pound for pound, the best rapper probably ever, and formally the most inventive and the most kind of like flawless. And like, here's a line. It has three different meanings. It completely (laughs) sets up the next four lines. And then the fifth line goes back as like a callback to something I said in the first line, which is in fact a reference to something else. Like you're just like, this guy, and he's not writing it down, and he actually found a sound that perfectly matched his flow with like the, especially when Blueprint came out, where it was just like, oh, like you, you just, you like soft rap. Yeah, he unlocked it. Yeah. And, you know, so the thing about it too, about the capitalism and the sort of, you know, impersonal nature of so much of Hove's catalog is this is where I get into problems with backpackers. Like, mm-hmm. I was explaining to a backpacker once. I was like, yo, you motherfuckers fronted on B.I.G. in real time. Yeah. This is what you were hating on in real time. B.I.G.? Are you shitting me, bro? Right? And so, that's why, whatever. But part of the critique of Jay has always been about the materialism and the excess and all of that. But what I would say to that is... I rap better than you. I look better than you. I'm going to take your girl, X, Y, and Z. That's foundational to the form. Yeah. The very first raps ever, that was the subject matter. So the braggadocia, the, the audacity, the basically, you know, coming at you, like I'm better than you. That is absolutely foundational to rap music from its inception. That's what that's what the attitude was and always has been. So the idea that we were critiquing God for leaning into that, it's like, all right, you call yourself pure hip hop. This 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 is about as pure as it gets. Yes, I know I know the message. Yes, I know that you know what KRS came and 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 um, Chuck Chuck D and them did afterwards. I understand the concept of conscious rap and Jay. You know he's been very self consciously not a conscious rapper yeah. for most of his for a lion's share of his career, right? But as you said, like just the form of rapping, of lyricism, of like you said, double and triple entendres, and again the flow. Like, I know it sounds cliche, but yes, as far as using your voice as an instrument on the record, this guy is the best that's ever done it. So yeah, when I listen to Reasonable Doubt and he's talking about, you know, drug dealers in Vegas not having as, enough, as much money as him at the craps table, I'm like, yes, give me more of that. That's what I want. 
Did you always have an emotional attachment to him? No. Um, Cause I was, it was like, for me, I was way more emotionally invested in Nas and in, and in Prodigy. So here's the thing. Like, so I'm going to put my age out there. I'm 34 years old. Yeah. I'm 43. Yeah. So in 1995, as an eight year old, when I'm like basically becoming conscious of what the music is that I like and the culture and the clothes and the way we talk and it is, I'm like becoming conscious that I'm a hip hop person. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm living in Brooklyn, in East Flatbush, Brooklyn at the time. And Bad Boy is not just ascended. They are just dominant. They are everything. Everything. You cannot, you couldn't talk to people about Bad Boy and specifically what Big was doing. Mm -hmm. He was like, it's, I can't even explain it to you. The amount of emotion that was attached to Big. Yeah. Everybody was emotionally attached to what he was doing in Brooklyn. Like he felt like he was ours. He just did. So of course he tragically passes away and there was a void. Like Nas was always there, but there was clearly a void of like, who is going to be that person for New York City? Yeah, but Nas was always like the keen observer. Like I think everybody, right. I mean, I think Nas admitted it himself. Like he's, he's like the guy who was sort of standing off to the side watching everything right. and noticing the details that nobody else no noticed. And when you listen to shootouts or you listen to it's like, some of his story songs where he's obviously like just like recording things from pieces of conversation that was, it's pretty much unparalleled from that time. 100% and Nas is somebody who was self-consciously not commercial. Like mm -hmm. he went out of his way to not be commercial. He did what he did on, um, it was written on the second album and all of the backpackers had a big conniption. <laughs> oh, he's doing songs with this right. and that. Everybody felt a way about it, but that was kind of it. The big Willie stuff. He did it one time and he moved on. So somebody was, had to like sort of step into that void and Jay-Z came out with volume one and it sold a million records, but he hadn't sort of did it yet. It didn't happen until can I get a, you know, Hard Knock Life, Volume 2. And what really, really, really is when, when he kind of just took his stamp, put his stamp on, all right, I'm the guy here now, is um, Jigga, What's My Name, which is his own song on the first Rough Riders album. He's not mm -hmm. Rough Riders. Nope. But he was, his stature was so big that Rough Riders even was like, no, nah, Jay-Z's going to have a song on the album. And I tell people this all the time. I think that song is the most bombed on per play from Funk Flex probably of my lifetime. Like, you know, whatever. This is New York City radio dorkery stuff, inside baseball stuff. But like Funk Flex, like that bomb drop, when he, when he pushed the button on a new song that he was trying to explain to the city, like this is it, or this is the guy, or this is what's happening, you know, he would do the flex thing. Yeah. Run it back, play it 20 times in a row, you know, play a one song for 15 minutes straight. It's like performance art almost. And that song specifically was like the moment that Jay was like, all right, it's me now. I still remember being in a budget rent-a-van. I think I was moving and he and flex was debuting PSA. <laughs> and I think I, I remember being like, it was like whatever the drive across Brooklyn was to stopping my car to the van and then just sitting in the van. And it probably took like 45 minutes to get through the entire song because Flex would just stop it, <laughs> yeah. drop bombs. And then he would just be like, 
get focused, be clear. This is happening. And I was, and I actually was just like, I have no idea how long this song is. If it is actually 45 minutes, I don't care. It's like that song, that is one of those songs. It's like, if you want to make a 40 minute version of PSA, I would listen to it. 100%. And so, yeah. So basically from that time on, cause I wasn't somebody in 96, like, Jay was 100% a niche thing. There were people, he had a very loyal following. There were people who were on it from the first one. When mm-hmm. they heard it, it was like, I have never heard somebody rap like this. But 100% he was niche. He was not some important figure. There were just people who were really tapped in because he was speaking a language specifically about hustling, selling drugs that only certain people understood what he was saying. It was so deeply coded what he was saying that not everybody caught it right away. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, he comes out with the second album, very self-consciously trying to c- cross over. He had the Blackstreet joint, um, Puffs on the album. He did the whole thing. He did this famously. They do the Sunshine video and, you know... Sunshine's a great record, by the way, for the record. That's a great fucking song. I don't know why people pillory it so much, but the video is a little goofy and cheesy. And famously, Dame was like, you know what? We're done with this. We're going back to what we know. Puts out Streets is Watching slash Where I'm From video. Bulletproof vests in the video. Like, this is what we do. And I think that laid the groundwork for what was going to happen in volume two, where he sells a bunch of records. He, you know, he he does the groundbreaking Hard Knock Life tour, which is like the first sort of stadium tour of its kind. Like everything happens afterwards, but like it didn't happen right away. So I wasn't on board right away. It wasn't until volume two. I can admit that. I went back and I started listening to Reasonable and all of that stuff, but I became a Jay fan when he took over. I was a bandwagoner. Yeah, I, I, it was for me. It wasn't until three, and I, I think I think there was probably some like latent backpacker shit for me. But there was right. also like there was just like a more of a deeply like I felt like more personally attached to Ray and Ghost and Nas and Mob Deep from that era, and also like that was also like a point where like coming out of Wu Tang and those first half dozen solo records that Wu Tang put out, it was kind of like. This is the this is the whole world, man. And anything else that's happening outside right. of Wu Tang was like was peripheral noise, and it could be good. But like for me, it was just like I can't think about anything but Cuban Links or Supreme Clientele or or whatever. Now, I was curious about: Do you think you'll ever love a rapper the way you love Jay, or do you think you'll ever have as deep a relationship with a rapper the way you lo- like have it with Jay? And because like you're, we're obviously there's an age difference, but I do wonder whether they're there is a guy that's your guy. There is a, a show that's your show or an era of shows that's your show, era of shows or maybe an era of movies that's your era of movies. And then at a certain point, you're kind of playing catch up or doing your due diligence to figure it out, but you're never going to love something the way you love that particular thing. So I used to think the answer was no, but then I want to say by the time If You're Reading This Is Too Late came out, mm-hmm. I was like, not only... Am I super obsessed with the music that Drake puts out? But like, I'm a Drake head. Like, period. Like, this guy might have surpassed Jay for me in my head as far as the music that I feel super duper attached to, right? Like, it's, to me, it's the Drake thing right now. And I think it's different. Here's the difference between my attachment to Jay and my attachment to Drake and what he's doing. When I was 12 years old and me and my homies on Saturdays would chill in, his, in, in my man's basement 
his parents' basement and just listen to raps and run them back and be like, yo, did you hear what he said? And play Lloyd Banks rhymes back and forth or whatever. <laughs> That's all we were kind of doing with the music, right? When I was listening to Jay, when I remember when my man downloaded freaking Blueprint off of MIRC Labor Day weekend in 2001, and I went to his crib and we sat there and we listened to this album together that's kind of how we interacted with his music. The thing about Drake and his music now is that it's part of what I do in life. Meaning, when I'm pre-gaming to go out with the homies, we're playing it. When mm-hmm. we're at the cookout, it's playing. When I'm at Delilah, it's playing. When I'm at the gym, it's playing. When we're in the car, it's playing. Like, his music follows me throughout my life in a way where it was different, my interaction with the music that I was listening to when I was 14 years old. It was kind of, we were kind of just dorking out and fanning out. Whereas this shit is part of a lifestyle now, right? Like the music that that this guy's making is part of what I do. And more specifically, like I wanted to be Jay-Z, right? I wanted to wear S dots. I wanted to, I yeah. did, I did have hard collar button-ups. <laughs> When Jay-Z got rid of jerseys. I did beg my mom to buy me Iceberg from Century 21. I wanted to be Jay-Z. I wanted to be Fab. I wanted to be these guys yeah. when I was younger. Now I just interact with Drake's music in a, on a level that is just integral to my lifestyle and how I live. But like when I was listening to Jay, when like, you know, when the Dynasty album came out and Flex is playing You, Me, Him, and Her a trillion times on the radio... It's a different interaction that I had with the music. Like, I wasn't living my life. I was a kid. Yeah. You feel me? Whereas now, like, when Drake album come out, I know wherever I'm at that weekend, it's going to be playing. Do you 100%. think that that's conscious on the part of Drake to permeate every part of a listener's life? Like, does he I want think, it to be more than music? Does he want it to be, like, the soundtrack to your life? 100% he's tapped into it. Um, Just... Just yo, just watch when Certified Lover Boy comes out next month. And I heard that it's dropping on the 23rd. Don't quote me on that, but that's what I heard. That's where every, some, everybody comes to the watch to find out about Drake drop dates. <laughs> so for people who may not know, um, I think he is conscious of that stuff. He's conscious of the internet. Very conscious of how the internet sort of works. And watch when Drake's album comes out. Every single woman's Instagram caption <laughs> is going to be a line from the album. It's It just... <laughs> Automatically, one hundred percent. But to get back to, to get back to what you what you were saying is, you know, I, my relationship with Drake and his music is never going to be the same as Hope because again, I, I don't want to be like him. But like, even somebody like Young Thug, who I think Slime Language too, that's been my most played album so far this year. Mm-hmm. That and Nicole probably. But Slime, like Young Thug, is one of my favorite artists ever. No, I'm not, I don't model my life after Young Thug, right? Like, I because I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Very few people could. You know, probably could. But like, it's the same thing. It's like slime language is what I'm playing when I have people over, when we're making dinner, when we're doing whatever we're doing. Like, these are the guys that I'm listening to. It's these newer kids. It is him. It is Travic. It is even somebody like a Baby King who I'm really into right now. It is... Those guys, or even Kodak Black, who's now like sort of problematic. It's tough. Right. He's a Haitian and I want to support him, but he's got some fucked up things going on in his life. Um, but it is those younger guys because 
I'm I'm not yet living a lifestyle of being in the crib and taking my kids to school, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And so what they put out more aligns with how I'm living and what I'm doing. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Rap's been a place where it's hard to age gracefully, right? Like, right. I think Drake... Drake's actually one of like the best to ever do it in terms of like figuring out a way to stay relevant for such a long period of time. Like I remember, I remember going to see him at SOBs. God, man, must have been before so far gone came out. Like oh, it was like oh nine. Yeah, like it was. I went with with John Caramonica. We went to SOBs and Drake came on and did. I mean, he did a lot of the songs that would wind up on so far gone, but it was like. It was kind of like obviously that this was going to be a really big deal. Like when you saw mm-hmm. and you saw also like people's reaction to songs that were not even officially released yet. Like you realize like this dude's really got it. But like the way that he's adapted to the way music has changed, both in terms of its sonics, but also in terms of the way people get it. Like for somebody who is pretty talented at putting together an album, he has become like a really adept off cycle song dropper. You know, and I think it of keeps course. him in the mix. Like, you have to kind of like, I don't know that Jay's ever done that. I think Jay, no. I mean, probably with Jay was probably p- past the sell by date anyway, but it's really difficult to imagine Jay being like, yeah, here's three songs. I'll come back in four months with two more. Yeah. Uh, and people are not, people are going to hate hearing this because whatever, Drake has his detractors. There's never been anything like this. The idea that a dude would go 10 years straight. For 10 years, Drake has had a relevant song out. Mm-hmm. Period. 10 straight years. And, and the crazy thing is, it can be argued that Jay-Z was actually never the biggest rapper in the game at any point in his career. Yeah, I mean, even right? with Black Album, when I think he's probably as good as anyone has ever rapped is Black Album. But like, I don't even know. I think Black Album in some ways was looked at as like, like a, a personal art exercise, not as like a mass... There was hits on it for sure. I'm just of saying, course. like, I, I don't think those hits encore. Yeah, like I don't know, like, but like I don't think that those those songs were like blockbusters. No, and it could be argued throughout the course of the whole thing when you talk about even in '98, which is his breakthrough year. That's the year DMX came out. Yeah, and those are, and DMX was insane. Jay himself huge. will tell you DMX was more beloved <laughs> than he was. Yeah, insanely huge. And then of course the Eminem thing, and then of course the Fifty Cent thing. It goes on and on and like. At no point, this it can be argued that he was at no point the absolute apex, biggest, as far as most popular, most commercially sold artists of his time, right? But we still just recognize him for his greatness. Drake has been the biggest rapper in the game for 10 years. Just period. That's just what it's been. And that's not to knock, obviously, Cole and Kendrick and Travis and... You know, even the chance moment, which I'm pretty happy is over. Like, even like those guys had like big moments and Mm -hmm. they're big. They're 
insanely huge in their own right. But like Drake has been it for 10 years, like straight. There's a song out at any given moment. Pick a time in the last 10 years. Drake has a relevant song. Like nobody's ever done it. It's like you said in rap where longevity is, it's almost unrealistic to even aim for that. Right? Like most people get to a point where it's like, look, I'm be able to do my tours. I'm gonna be able to go to Europe, Australia, Asia, get paper till the day that I die, and I'm fine. I don't need to be at the forefront of this culture and this music and that rat race and that churn. But Drake has did it. He's done it. It's impossible to to nail being too prolific versus being too scarce the way he has. Like, I mean, right. like when you talk about somebody like Kendrick, and Kendrick has pretty much vanished. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think very consciously has kind of like decided to just take a step back. There was like a buzz there for a second when there was that TD, TDE, like is like an album from TDE is coming. And then everybody's like, it's going to be Kendrick. It's going to be Kendrick. And then there was, pre- it was pretty definitively quickly, like been like, dude, we're not going to see Kendrick for a minute. Do you think when somebody like Kendrick leaves, leaves the stage cold, like for that for too long, like it runs counter to like it their ability to develop any momentum artistically or creatively, or at least they're in their relationship with their audience? I think they very smartly crafted, marketed a self-image of Kendrick of being this album artist, of him being sort of above the logistics and the mechanics of modern music. Yeah, making. being a little bit reclusive. Right. He's crafted that for himself. He's known as an album artist, right? So I think the the public expects him to do bodies of work. He's conditioned the public to expect his work to come in a certain form. He's like Radiohead. Yeah. Right. Drake on the, has done the opposite. He's like... Who's this rapper you've never heard of named Black Boy JB from Memphis? Yeah, I'm going to do a song with him. I'm going right. to put it out. And it's not going to be affiliated with anything officially Drake. It's just, I'm going to do it, right? Who's this kid Blue from Mobile, Alabama, wherever he's from? DeMarcus Cousin passed me his tape and I recorded a verse to it. I'm going to put it out, right? Like Drake has done, the, he's like, I'll get on anything damn there. You know, like he broke little baby who is now... Basically, after the Coles, the Kendricks, and the Drakes, Little Baby is basically the fourth biggest rapper in the game probably right now. And Drake broke that kid with that record, right? Not that he didn't have a buzz in Atlanta and all of that stuff. He broke it. Migos with Versace. Drake, like, he's had the opposite sort of mold. And of course, you know, people will say, oh, that's Drake. They say he's hot. He's always hopping on artist waves and all of that. And you go ask those artists what that did for their careers. They'd be like... Let him hop on my way. Yeah, it changed it. They changed my. He changed my life. Changed yeah. the trajectory. Yep. Do you go in much for nostalgia stuff? Like right now, I can't help but really like the Tyler song, uh, "Lumberjack," which basically sounds like a mid aughts gangster girls track. And obviously, like I think Andy and I have talked a lot before about about really, really liking Griselda, you know, because Griselda sounds like the music that we fell in love with when we were first getting into rap. Do you have like a, a nostalgia touch point, or do you prefer stuff that turns the page. So I definitely had a point where I thought I was past it. I definitely did. Cause again, I, I've been so like a lot of people would be like, man, you listen to a lot of these new kids. And I'm like, I kind of, it's like a language that you have to learn, right? Yeah. Like young thugs music is like, 
it's an acquired taste. Like you have to really learn how to listen to what this dude makes. Um, and I got so tapped into that. But at the same time, when Drake would put out something like 6 p.m. in New York, I'm like, yeah, this is it. This is hip hop. I'm yeah. back. You know? <laughs> like, so it's it's crazy because last year during the pandemic. I love how you just sounded like Star and Buck at the same time when you said that. <laughs> like last year, I had never been into Freddie Gibbs. I never really gave it a chance. And for whatever reason, I was like, let me throw on this Gangsta Gibbs real quick, see what's going on. And it became one of my favorite things to listen to. And Freddie Gibbs is somebody who is, he's doing the thing that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. He's doing that traditional sort of boom bap, if you will, type of rap, those type of beats, those type of dirty soul samples with, with Mad Lib, who is like a legend in the field of sampling, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, Alchemist. Like, if you do back-to-back -back albums with Alchemist and Mad Lib, you're a certain type of rapper. Yeah, right. right? Definitely. You know what I mean? Definitely. And so I found myself getting into Gibbs. Of course, I'm into what the Griselda guys do. I think Conway is like, one of the most genius rappers I've ever heard. It's my, it's my favorite Griselda dude. He's outside. insane. Yeah. He is insanely good at rapping. Um, so yeah, I still, I'm still a sucker for it. That's the, that's the old head in me for sure. Definitely, you know, 2001 DJ Clue mixtape, listening to Shells and telling everybody, yo, Shells is the next one, right? <laughs> Billy Bathgate is about to take over the game, yeah. fam. A-team. Uh, that's it. You know, like, I'm definitely always... I feel like I'm always going to be tapped into that. But I do definitely gravitate to the newer stuff, for sure. How did your music taste change when you moved out west? You know, it's crazy because I think right before I moved to Los Angeles, I was getting into the house music wave because I was going to more festivals. Oh. And... Um, I remember the first time I went to Made in America in Philly and I just thought Jay and them was genius for marrying the house EDM, for lack of a better word, side with the rap side. Like, it was like, it was like a eureka moment for me where I was like, yo, I'm really into house now. Like, I really, really fuck with Calvin Harris. Like, not just the pop stuff that he does that goes crazy, but like the sort of deeper, deep house root stuff that he gets into. I'm like, yo, this is fire. Like, I really mess with Disclosure. Like, so moving out here, that type of music is definitely more conducive to driving through the freaking Laurel Canyon. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. It's different. You know, there's something to, I do get like whack nostalgia and corny chills every time I drive over the Williamsburg Bridge into downtown Manhattan, into the LES. It's like, wow, what a city. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's something about that feeling for sure. But I think house music specifically, the vibrations that you get off of that are definitely more LA-centric to me, right? Like, it's just more, it's just happier, you know? Um, and and so I find myself listening to a lot of that more that I'm here on the West Coast for sure. And I think I like stuff like Bay Area and LA rap music more now. Yeah, that I mean, that definitely happens when you move out here. It's like, there's this weird thing where, I mean, especially like, I think for our generation growing up, there was still like a, a pretty 
decided regionalism to the extent that even like I took me like a while to get in to Atlanta stuff and it took me a while to get into like same Houston stuff like it just even if I could respect UGK it was like took me a minute to be like oh this is why Pimp C is like maybe one of the top five rappers ever like it, 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 it just doesn't there's certain parts of it that don't quite connect with the East Coast metropolis brain sometimes but when I moved out here, I think a lot of it became oriented around driving. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's interesting to hear you say that stuff about house music because I think so much of it is contextual. Like, I remember in the early 2000s, I was interviewing these dudes, James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy, who James Murphy is an LCD sound system, and they had this mm-hmm. production duo called DFA, Death From Above. So they, were, they basically had a studio and they would throw dance nights. And I was interviewing them about like all these records that they were producing at the time, like The Rapture and stuff like that. And Goldsworthy was basically like, the problem with America is you guys have never had an ecstasy revolution. He was like, not enough people in America take ecstasy. And he was like, in England, in the 90s, E came and everybody started to dance and just the most square dude in England is still taking a pill on a Friday night and dancing until five in the morning. And it's like a completely normal part of like English social culture, I guess. And I was like, couldn't be me, man. I just like I'm just an uptight guy listening to punk rock and rap, and everything is real, real nervy, and nobody really dances. But that did change in New York at that time when then like this this kind of like post punk mm-hmm. disco feel came in, and then the house stuff really exploded. But when you move out here, yeah, it's like if you you either go to clubs or you drive around a lot. You do both, maybe. But like it's like when you drive, it really changes your relationship to your music because it's not like oh man, it's just like me and five people in an apartment living room just like right. just vibing out. It's like, no, you're just you're just in traffic and it's going to be this this for a while. And, you know, what's important about what that homie said to you, right, is being here, sometimes for a certain type of music, you have to see it within its own ecosystem to fully grasp it. Like the first time I went to Oakland, and I heard Bay Area music being played amongst Bay Area people and mm-hmm. watched that reaction. It's like it gives you a much better understanding of how the music works and f- works and functions. Same thing with a festival. Like you might have your own ideas about what EDM music is or house music is or whatever. But once you see it in that environment and you see how people are reacting to it, you get an understanding for what the power of the actual music is, right? And I think that's the same thing for me for moving out to the West Coast, right? Like, like I literally, like you said, would sit in a basement with five other dudes <laughs> and listen to rap music and have formal discussions about yeah. the lines in the music. The nerdiest, dorkiest thing possible. Whereas like, yeah, if you go to a kickback out here in LA and it's outside and it's February and it's 72 degrees and this is the music that's playing, you get a better feel for it than I could have on the freaking subway at 6.45 in the morning <laughs> when it's 18 degrees and outside. You're, you're waiting for the train outside yeah. and it's freezing rain sideways. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's a little different, right? So- your interaction with the music becomes different once you see it in its proper element. As somebody who basically professionally talks for a living, do you find yourself, uh, do you think that pods wind up competing for the space that music would normally have for you or do they compete with the space that you would spend watching TV or movies? 
I think for me, it's definitely competing with the pods in the sense that... For, with the music? Like the pods compete with music? Yeah, in yeah. the sense that I listen to so many podcasts, not just for entertainment, but like literally for work, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I need to consume this shit so that I can just, so I can then repurpose it for myself. <laughs> no, I know. I know. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's part of the job is to listen to people talk about the NBA. Like for me, I feel like it's part of my job to be like, all right, I'm thinking this way. All right, let me, I want to hear what Rosillo has to say about X, Y, and Z, right? Like it becomes part of your job as somebody who works in this field. But like even people who don't, when I talk to them, they're like, yeah, I'm at the gym. I'm listening to a podcast. You know, when I'm in the car, I'm playing a podcast. When I'm cooking in the crib, I'm playing a podcast. So even people who aren't doing this for a living like you and I are, are finding themselves playing pods rather than music 100%. That's yeah. the case. Well, I mean, like the music winds up changing the, it's like, uh, it's like the emotional thermostat. It's like if you, sometimes you want it to change the temperature and sometimes it just changes the temperature without asking you. Like I will just be on like, a picking up food run. And if I put on a Tom Waits ballad or like a Mogwai song, I might just wind up like being kind of shattered when I'm going to pick up a pizza and I have no intention <laughs> to. And God bless Rosillo. He doesn't necessarily do that to me. You know, like Rosillo is just going to be like yelling about, about Ben Simmons for 20 minutes. And then I'm right. like, then bet I get the pizza and I come back and I'm in the same mood that I was right. when I left the house. That's the thing that m music really does is it really does have a, ch a tendency to shape whatever like emotional color palette you're working with, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. You would say that. Cause you know, some of my favorite stuff is when you're out at a social event and seeing people react to a DJ who knows what the hell he's doing. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. what, what a DJ is doing is emotionally manipulating the crowd. That's what's happening. Like he's eliciting feelings at his fingertips with what he plays next or how he combines a transition or a blend or whatever. Like, that's exactly what it is. It's like you're inciting emotion from people. Whereas, like, when I'm listening to Dan Harlan, <laughs> Carlin's <laughs> Hardcore History, <laughs> I'm not getting hyped. I'm kind of yeah. laughing every You're not waiting every for the bass to drop. <laughs> no, I'm not. Exactly. Yeah. And so that is part of it. You know, the emotional part of music, is, that's not quite the same as podcasts where you're literally just trying to learn about why Joe Manchin refuses to vote to get rid of the filibuster, right? Like, no. you're really just trying there's to no, figure it no out. There's no Diplo remix for that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, like, when you go out and you hear people play records and really, really, and everything lines up, it, it is one of, it's like the singular experience, man. Like, the, the tension between basically the expected and the unexpected, it's like you have the thing that you know this person eventually is going to play, and when he plays it at the right moment, it's going to just it completely blow the room up versus the I can't believe this guy picked this out of the stacks to like surprise me or to like change the mood of the night is just it's so great I haven't done it obviously in like in a while but I used to go to shortstop which is this bar on sunset near Dodger Stadium and they had some like really great nights like that what else should we hit before we go do you want to just sing the praises of hacks before before I let you go hacks is hacks is dope in the sense of like the show is so aware that it's a comedy show. Um, and I think, I find it to be kind of charming, right? Like, I think that's, it's, it's got heart, but it is aware that we're supposed to be trying to make you laugh in between, which I can appreciate, but I do appreciate the more delicate moments 
of the show too, right? Like you could like they're doing good stuff with like the overbearing mom and the trifling sister who steals the husband yeah. and the the underachieving daughter and like they're doing the delicate interpersonal stuff really well and also trying to make us laugh which I can appreciate so I like it you know like it's it gets heavier at moments than I than I'm even the second <laughs> half of the season is a lot heavier than the first half for sure yeah you know what I mean that I'm even ready for but I'm I'm into the show I think I'm at episode 7 right now I'm looking forward to I've been slowly you know unspooling it because I'm like look I, I know I'm not going to have anything else to watch after I'm done with this but I've really been enjoying it do you like look forward to when the NBA season's over, you're going to have like, I'm going to go get into like a three or four season long show. I'm going to go get like a project going. 100%. Tell, what's on the wish list? What, what's on like the, the was like the summer projects, man, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't really have a list. I just know I can browse the various streamers that we all now have. Right. Whether it be Hulu Netflix, Peacock, HBO. Like, the library is so dense and so rich. Like, I didn't watch Friends in real time. I might give it a try. Yeah. You know, I'm like, do I really want to watch this show with absolutely zero black people ever? <laughs> like, do I, do I feel like doing this? But it's like, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. Sometimes you want to do your own sort of research, right? Like, I watched The Graduate for the first time like two days. I saw yesterday. you tweeting about this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like for the first time, I'm like, yo, this movie has come up throughout my life. I'm consuming content dedicated to the history of film, right? right? Like this movie's constantly coming up. Let me watch this thing. And I'm just like, the concept that this dude, this awful man <laughs> would have both of these beautiful, insanely beautiful women, smart women, would want him? Really? And he's like five foot one? Come on, bro. Come on. It's funny movie, Dustin though. Hoffman, though. It's no, funny. It is movie, funny, yeah. It's do a you, funny movie. When you go back and watch like older movies like that, do they play for you though? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, rhythm for wise? sure. For sure. For sure. I, I it could still play for me. And you know, some of these guys are freaking geniuses, right? Like I, HBO Max is good, has been good at curating their their yeah, music, they have movie the, library. The, a lot of the TCM a lot of the right. classic movies catalogs. So, so I'm it's, watching Al Pacino and Serpico and I'm like, yo, this guy, wow. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty good actor. <laughs> pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we'll have to have you back on after the NBA season once you've you've embarked on a watching project. And you're like, I'm, like, I'm going to keep you abreast as right. the list develops. And yeah, we'll we'll get something going for sure. All right. Uh, you can catch Waz on group chat every week. You'll be hearing a lot more of him as the summer goes on and as we get into the fall. A lot of cool projects coming up. Waz, thank you so much for joining me on The Watchmen. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm officially a Baranski. 